reason the culture is post-Christian is not necessarily because we've engaged in the culture war and loss, but perhaps because we did not provide soul-satisfying answers to the biggest questions of our age. I think by and large, uh, what we did is we produced the megachurch as a response to some of the biggest questions of our, our day, which would be uh, human sexuality, meaning, existence, race. If you, if you don't have to think out and argue and justify a position in the public square, then no. you don't, you don't yeah. do it and, and you grow lazy. And I think particularly Protestantism grew very lazy in terms of thinking about these big questions. So I think you're, you're right that Protestantism in particular has been caught terribly short by what's happened in our culture, the sudden flipping in our culture to a very antithetical kind of morality from a Christian perspective. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. I'm Reed Huberman, and I'm really excited today to have um, somebody who has been an inspiration to me as of late, based upon his writing and his intellect. Our guest today is Dr. Carl Truman. He's a pastor, he's a professor, he's a philosopher, historian, uh, theologian, and I would say a cultural commentator in his most recent book, um, or one of his most recent books, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the of the Modern Self. In that book, he discusses the work of Charles Taylor and Philip Reif and nuances the views of the likes of Marx, Rousseau, Nietzsche, and Freud, among others. And he does so to diagnose kind of what's going on culturally, which is what we do here on Indie Thinker so much. Where do these ideas stem from? What's the history of these things? And what can we make of them? And uh, he does that really, really great and goes into things like the trans movement and the sexual revolution and the like. And the book has been quoted by a number of key thinkers. And he just recently made his way on the, uh, the documentary that's kind of just exploded, uh, What is a Woman? by The Daily Wire. So, Dr. Truman, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me on, Reed. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely a pleasure. Um, I, like I said, I wasn't just uh, floating your boat there, but I've actually really enjoyed uh, your book and the way in which uh, books kind of sit with me, at least, and this may be totally dysfunctional, is that I know a book is good, at least from my perspective, when it takes me forever to read it. And that has nothing to do with the length. It's because I have to I have to set it down so often and think about what was just written. And I found myself doing that a lot in your book. Um, again, this, this is this is totally sincere. Uh, I'm doing the same thing right now with G.K. Chesterton. I can't I can't read many sentences before I have to set it down again. And I did that with your with your book so many times just because I feel like it's so relevant to what's going on in the world today. Um, I don't know if when it's all said and done, you'll call it your magnus, magnum opus, but, uh, but it certainly is a very, very important book for our time. So um, I'm glad you took the time to, to write it, and uh, it's been very inspirational to me. Uh, so let's we'll dig into the book for the bulk of the conversation today, but I'd like to just maybe start off on a light note, I suppose, before we dig into the, to the weeds and go to heavy lifting. So um, tell me a little bit about your experience with being on the documentary of The Daily Wire, because I was surprised to see you there specifically because 
uh, maybe this is just uh, just because I'm um, desperate to uh, have our voice represented in the culture. But um, even though the vast majority of the guys at the Daily Wire are, are Christians, um, it was still good and refreshing to see a thoughtful Christian voice, um, uh, philosopher, theologian represented in a film like that. So um, I guess I'm just kind of curious, and then I'll dovetail with another question that's relevant to it. But uh, how did you get in contact with those guys, and uh, what was it like uh, filming the documentary? Well, uh, the the book came came across the path of Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh uh, sometime in the first six to eight months of it being published, and I was aware they tweeted about it. Ben yeah. had me on one of his podcasts, so they were aware of the book. And then I think it was last October time, I got an email from the director of the of what was to become the movie, What Is a Woman asking if I'd be willing to to go down to their headquarters and be filmed, uh, interviewed about uh, the, the trans issue, really to try to set the whole thing in historical context. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I teach at Grove City College, so I probably teach at one of the few institutions and I have one of the few jobs in the United States of America where being involved in that documentary might not actually completely destroy my career. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering so about that. I, I, I to be, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. That'll be fun. And I mean, I can't go into all the details. It would take too long, but it's the only day in my life when I had my own personal ex-Navy SEAL armed bodyguard. There we go. Day. Yeah, so that's what happens was, when you dig a, into that it was topic. A great experience. Oh yeah, it was an interesting day's exposure to to some of the the scarier side of, of identity politics. For sure. Well, I, I, like I said, I'm glad you were there. Um, and it kind of sows into maybe a very broad kind of conversation about the book. Um, but uh, but you'll have to forgive me. I was listening this morning in preparation to prepare for our conversation today. I was listening to a conversation you had with Colin Hansen of the Gospel Coalition. Um, and it was very interesting uh, just to hear the conversation about the book and what you guys were discussing. But I was also, um, it, it piqued my interest to hear kind of the background uh, that you guys kind of um, glossed over with your own personal relationship with him, but then also to kind of what you guys had to say about uh, culture war. Um, and I found that uh, really striking because I, I think um, one of the things that I'm consistently trying to discover, unearth, investigate is what is the Christian response to what's going on in, yeah. in the world? And um, I think it's fair to say that you and Colin um, expressed some trepidation, if not criticism, of culture war and the way in which Christians are kind of uh, handling that. And in some ways, I, I, I totally get that. But then I also reflected upon um, what the Daily Wire is doing in light of that documentary and how much of an impact it's having and how uh, widespread it's becoming, almost to, to even call it a movement. Um, and, uh, and I thought about the documentary, but then also to the response of the Daily Wire, who I think it's fair to say is in, inculcating the culture with conservative ethics and values. And I think about, well, what's the Christian response there? Isn't there some way in which we as Christians are supposed to do the same thing? Um, and, and how do we respond to what's going on in culture right now? Now, I realize that so much of what's going on in culture sure seems at the foreground to be a critique of Christianity. Um, and you, I think it was alluded to in that conversation with Colin that perhaps that uh, the reason the West or America specifically is post-Christian is because maybe we've lost that battle. Um, and, and, and I want to throw something your way and just kind of hear what you have to say about that. I think perhaps that the reason the culture is post-Christian is not necessarily because 
we've engaged in the culture war and loss, but perhaps because we did not provide soul-satisfying answers to the biggest questions of our age. I think, by and large, uh, what we did is we produced the megachurch as a response to some of the biggest questions of our, our day, which would be uh, human sexuality, meaning, existence, race. You know, how do we have a biblical, redeemed perspective on these things? And I think, by and large, I don't know that the church really gave soul-satisfying answers in my generation, which would be millennial, and then I, I think it's fair to say your generation too, which would be Gen X, I don't know that we really did a sufficient job of engaging in those cultural ideas. And I think, it's maybe anecdotally based upon experience, I view the rejection of Christianity in the culture largely because we didn't engage like we should have. Now, um, whether that looks like what we're doing today or, or, or not, I think is a is a big question that um, maybe for another podcast. But but if we look at the culture war just simply as this, not otherizing or not treating the uh, the other as enemy, but rather a um, a battle for ideas or fighting bad ideas with good ideas, and from a Christian perspective, fighting bad ideas with redeemed ideas. I look at your book and I think to myself, boy, this is a great. Um, this is a great tool in the toolbox in order to be able to do that. So I'm curious about what you think your the role of your book is in the kind of greater auspices of the culture war, or if there is a critique that you have about that. Um, what is it, and and how does your book fit into something that doesn't that doesn't coincide with the culture war? Yeah, I think there's a couple of couple of comments there. First of all, generally in culture war, I think that the Bible itself uses martial language, so. Yeah. The idea that we're in a war is, is not in and of itself a bad thing. Really, when, when we talk about culture war, often we're talking about strategy and tactics rather than the, the bigger phenomena. There's no doubt in my mind that the world is a spiritual battleground. The Bible yeah. makes that very clear. Uh, second thing uh, is I think that you're right uh, in, in what you say about how we, we've lost ground. I, I'd put it this way. I think that for many years, for many generations, the, the basic moral framework or instincts of Western society tracked pretty closely to the moral instincts of Christianity. Right. So homosexuality was regarded as wrong. It may have been regarded as wrong for the wrong reasons. Right. But the basic moral code of the West tracked with uh, the basic Christian ethical code. And the reasons for that, the, the, or, the, the Christian origins of the Western ethical code. I think what that did was it made us lazy. Because if, if you if you don't have to think out and argue and justify a position in the public square, you then don't. you don't you don't yeah. do it and, and you grow lazy. And I think particularly Protestantism grew very lazy in terms of thinking about these big questions. So I think you're you're right that Protestantism in particular has been caught terribly short by what's happened in our culture, the sudden flipping in our culture to a very antithetical kind of morality from a Christian perspective. Um, where does my book fit into this? Well, in part, there are various ways I could think of it. One, it's it's an attempt to appropriate some of the best of Catholic thinking on this, because mm -hmm. Catholics with their natural law tradition yeah. uh, and their strong tradition of social teaching agree or disagree with it, they've got it. They have a resource to draw on. And I think that it, one thing that Protestants, uh, I'm grateful now to Catholicism for, is the certain resources there we're able to draw on. Yeah, Secondly, I, I think that you know, I'd want to distinguish the culture war. So the culture war takes place on at least two levels. Mm -hmm. On one level, there's the there's the battle for 
policy within and institutions within the broader culture. Uh, and that's fought through the ballot box. It's fought in D.C. It's fought in all of the usual political ways. Uh, but there's also, I think, a, a battle for the minds that's taking place yeah. at an individual and personal level in the classroom, for example, where I teach. And my approach there is I need to be persuasive. Uh, if I'm standing on a, a political platform, I need to make a good case for my political platform. I need to win votes. If I'm in the classroom, I'm not winning votes. Mm -hmm. What I need to do is persuade students who are maybe sitting on the fence on key issues that the traditional Christian position is a reasonable one to hold and it can be held by people who don't knee-jerk hate their neighbours and who don't engage in caricaturing their opponents. So what, right. what, I, what I try to do in the book is, is offer a, a, an approach to issues of sexuality, which are among some of the most hot-button issues in our culture. Where, at least from my perspective, I say, if I've got a gay student in class, I'm not going to feel embarrassed about saying to them, read that chapter in my book. They're not going to feel that they were uh, mm. talked about hatefully. They're not going to feel that they were despised. They're not going to feel that their viewpoint or their arguments were belittled or treated lightly. I, I want the book to be a model of engagement with the big ideas of the day in a way that avoids the the kind of slanging match and soundbite engagement that avoids the refusing to acknowledge the good faith of anybody who disagrees with me mm -hmm. that so characterizes much of the public debate on both sides today sure yeah no i think that's great and and i think if you you need two things to actually be able to ch change something you need information because you cannot change that which you know nothing about and then you need care. You need to be concerned with that thing. You, you need to actually have a, a heart for it and a concern for it and actually care for it carefully. And I think I think you are right. I think, too, in, in the past, if if Christians might be uh, criticized for something is that when they did engage, they might have not have done so with the greatest of, of footing or with straw manning arguments and not fully understanding things. So I, that's why I'm so grateful for your book, because I, I truly do view it as uh, not from a pejorative sense. And it's, again, such loaded language, but I view it as a great... Uh, I said tool before, but I'll go ahead and say I view it as a great weapon for the the culture war in terms of being as informed as possible as you can with what is going on in the culture. Um, and and so with that being said, um, let's talk about the modern self. Now, you spent hours upon hours in a book discussing this, but uh, and now I'm going to ask you to do the impossible thing of succinctly uh, describing. But um, could you succinctly describe for us exactly what is the modern self or yeah. how we have come to um, understand human nature in, in the present? What, what is, what's kind of like a definition for the way we view yeah. the self? Well, the modern self, first of all, just the, the way we're using the self here, of course, is not the common sense way of, you know, I know I'm me and, and you're you, that sort of basic self-consciousness. What we mean by the self is how we understand ourselves as individuals in relation to the world around us, in relation to other people around us, how we would articulate the purpose of life, how we would understand happiness, all of these different things. And my argument in the book is that the modern self is characterized by what sociologists call expressive individualism. And to put expressive individualism in, in a, to, to express it simply, an ex, expressive individualism is the notion that every individual has an inner core of feeling. Mm -hmm. And in order to be authentic, 
I need to be able to give outward expression. One might say I need to be able to live outwardly consistent with my inner feelings. Now, it would take a long time to, to, to elaborate why this is the case, but that notion of the self carries with it other implications. Uh, it will tend uh, to, to give me a view of myself as autonomous or unencumbered. Mm -hmm. In other words, that I don't have natural dependencies or responsibilities towards others. My primary responsibility is towards myself and my own authenticity. It will lead to a position where uh, in, you know, if you'd asked my grandfather, what does oppression look like for my grandfather? It would have been, you know, somebody restricting his body or somebody taking his money or his job from him. It would have been a very outward kind of thing. When we think about oppression now, we often think about words people will use about other people, uh, epithets that we might apply that are deemed to be hurtful or damaging or traumatizing. But again, that derives from a notion where the real me is this core of feelings. Mm -hmm. So the most significant things that can be done to me are the things that affect that inner core of feeling or stop me giving full expression outwardly to that inner core of feeling. And that, I think, is the broader context for a lot of modern identity politics, Think particularly of sexual identity politics. Uh, a lot of people you know, thought, well, hey, we, we don't want homosexuality outlawed. We don't want people to go to prison for that. Mm -hmm. But we oppose gay marriage because that would water down marriage. Well, for the express individual who identifies as a, as a homosexual, that resolution is never going to be good enough because to deny me as a homosexual man marriage is to is to tolerate me rather than accept me. Mm -hmm. And if you tolerate somebody, you sort of allow them to exist, but you don't fully affirm them as who they are. So expressive individualism actually lies at the core of a lot of modern identity politics as well. Yeah. And you asked the question at the beginning of the book, or at least um, um, parrot the question uh, that we're hearing so often in the culture, uh, which uh, is not only what is a man, but um, how do I know what a man is? And how did we get to the place where a woman can say they are a man or a man is, is a woman? And... Um, so going into this idea of the modern self, it, I was I was thinking about um, Augustine and then I was thinking about your your work on Rousseau and how the two have a very different fundamental understanding of what human nature looks like. So you think about original sin with Augustine and then with Rousseau, you think about the quote that uh, that men are born free, but everywhere are in chains. And so there's a very fundamental different understanding here of what human nature actually looks like. So one is born in original sin, one is born uh, free, but then society is oppressing it everywhere. And it kind of sews into this kind of what you're saying with the with the modern self. Like, I think, therefore I am, and my feelings dictate who I am, and my feelings can't be wrong and and it's such an interesting thing because I think about growing up and I think and I think it was not a foreign idea to to think about fighting against my feelings because my feelings might be wrong and it almost seems as though that's totally 180 and flipped on its head now and it is um criminal uh, as as it were to to um, resist what one may may feel so um I guess I guess I want to specifically focus on Rousseau because I think in his ideas will help us really unearth where we've we've gotten uh, to in the present. So why do we think this way in our present age? How 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 come we 
perceptualize the modern self based upon feelings and maybe specifically Rousseau and and what he passed down to us that gave us this impression? Yeah. I mean, you really ask the question of what is it that makes Rousseau's ideas plausible to the extent that they've become sort of dominant in modern society? Yeah. There's no simple answer to that. I think part of the answer is uh, a collapse in authority of external authorities. Rousseau, of course, is writing in the, in the, in the 150 years after the great crisis of the Reformation. Uh, he's writing in the, you know, immediately prior to the French Revolution. The 18th century is a, is a century of, of upheavals. It's a century where the markers of traditional identity, place, uh, vocation, uh, are all beginning to be transformed. The, the arrival of, of trade, mercantilism, these kind of things are beginning to change how people relate to technology is changing. Uh, and what Rousseau does is give early, uh, early articulation to this notion of human beings as defined by their autonomy. And in the centuries since Rousseau, that has only become more plausible. Mm -hmm. uh, technology has at least uh, tempted us to think we're free. I think there's an argument to be made for saying that technology has just enslaved us in different ways. Yeah. But at, our intu at an intuitional level, technology seems to make us the masters of the universe. Even down you know, with the trans issue to the point where now not even my own body has the final say in who I am. Mm -hmm. If my feelings run counter to my body, guess what? I can engage in medical treatments and medical procedures that will bring my body to heal, that will subordinate my body to my desires and my will. So there's a there's an institution and a technological history, I think, that makes Rousseau plausible. From a Christian perspective, I would also say that the Rousseau myth of autonomy is precisely what the fallen human being wants to hear yeah. we want to hear that we are free that we are if you like gods in our own little domain so we naturally as fallen human beings tilt towards rousseau anyway mm, yeah that's that's interesting yeah so there's almost this kind of tip of the hat toward our our fallen nature or um, uh, things that come natural to us. Um, I, I, I want to ask this question almost tongue-in-cheek because I know we don't have much time but um, did you, I found myself looking at some of the ideas that have inculcated the culture, specifically with the sexual revolution. And you, and I had never even heard of Shula Myth Firestone prior to your quoting her in the book. And I was just absolutely um, amazed at the, uh, I guess two things, the second wave feminist um origins of the transgender movement, which I think are illustrated pretty well in your book, but then also to the ideology that sprung out of the second wave feminism and how stark it is from first wave feminism. Uh, because you think about Shula Myth Firestone, who's declaring that even if nature itself tells us we are something, we will take whatever technological means within our within our ability to resist that nature. So it's it's like this overt and, and obvious statement of we don't care about the facts, we're going to do what we want uh, anyway. Um, but I guess the tongue-in-cheek question is this, is as a professor, do you at, at some place admire these people for being able to inculcate the culture in the manner in which they have? Yeah, I think the, I, I think Firestone's <laughs> remarkable. I mean, brilliant, prophetic, I mean, she's writing about what we would now call in vitro fertilization. Mm -hmm. She's writing about that in 1970. That's, 
That, that's an amazing, yeah. an amazing forecast. She's writing about what became cyborg feminism, but is now transhumanism. Mm -hmm. This idea that we can effectively mesh human beings with machines and transcend what it means to be human. Uh, I think Nietzsche fits into this picture as well. You know, Nietzsche is a brilliantly consistent and prophetic uh, thinker. Uh, so yes, there is, you, you asked the question tongue in cheek, but to me there is, I won't say that they're admirable people, mm -hmm. but I am immensely impressed by their intellectual acumen and their ability to think through certain positions with such remarkable consistency. Yeah. The tragedy of, of Shulamith Firestone I've got, you know, is, of course, that when she died, she died in Manhattan, I think, uh, or in New York somewhere. Uh, within the last 10, 15 years, uh, her body was not discovered until the smell had spread into mm. other apartments. She died old and alone. Yeah. And, and I, when I teach her at, at, at Grove, I make the point to students, you know, when you have this radical philosophy of autonomy, guess what? You run the risk of dying completely autonomous. Yeah. You die and nobody misses you. There is nobody dependent upon you. Mm -hmm. Nobody uh, who feels your loss. And that's deeply tragic. So Firestone's own death in some way is a tragic epitaph to the brilliant consistency of her own thought. Yeah, that's a, a well put. And I mean, I, I, as deeply saddening as that is, I think it's a clarion call to all of us to um, to impact the culture in a positive way, um, and that we, we we can do this if it's done with enough forethought, <clears throat> with enough intellect, with enough information, and with enough care that that it's possible to to really impact the culture. I, I think to myself about the thing that was popular when I was a kid, which is cutting. Um, which is the closest, uh, and maybe this is a crude analogy, but it's the closest thing I can think of to the tra modern trans movement because there's a physical element to it and there's kind of this uh, this inner uh, feeling side to it. So people would cut themselves in the early 90s just so that they could feel alive, they would see the blood and they would feel the pain. And it was this kind of existential crisis of cutting. And I almost wonder if that's not similar to what's going on in the trans movement, which is an existential crisis of, of cutting as well. Yeah. And, and I, I think the, the other analogy is uh, to um, bulimia anorexia. Mm -hmm. that this, uh, there's a hatred or, or a, a, a deep dis-ease with the body that I think uh, marks these. And, of course, I think as with cutting as well, an element of control, of trying to grab yeah, hold yeah. of control in some way. So it's, it's interesting. What, what, of course, is tragic is that with cutting, with anorexia, with bulimia, the medical establishment and the yes. government knew these were bad things and they worked very hard to protect kids and young people from these desires these senses what we're witnessing now is governments uh throwing the full weight of themselves and the medical establishment behind promoting yeah. This, yeah. very harmful this is stuff. this is exactly that's exactly what I was was I was alluding to is the fact that you it would be unthinkable to believe that your politicians and big pharma and other um, organizational structures in America would get behind cutting, but that's exactly yeah. what they've done with the transgender movement. Yeah, and, yeah. and and all of this in the span of like 20 years, because when I was a, a kid in the 90s and even in the early 2000s, it would have been unthinkable that, uh, that a man would think he was a woman. Now, regardless of even what you think about this, um, 
uh, it's undeniably true that 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 would have been considered absurd. And then within a short 15 years, um, 20 years maximum, my how things have changed. I was going to say, and one of the big human rights issues of of the 90s was female genital mutilation. And the West was pitted against that. Feminism was against that, and rightly so. Now, genital mutilation is being institutionalized in our own nation in the name of the health of kids. And and it it is as perverse and absurd as you can get. Yeah. So if we're not going to buy into the sexual revolution, second wave feminism or Rousseau's idea of the individual being born um, good um, and maybe even buy into Augustine's idea, but at least buy into the idea that that expressive individualism is a not a recipe for uh, future success. Um, how should we define ourselves then? Well, I, I certainly think at, at a philosophical level, what is it to be a human being? It's to be a rational, dependent creature. I like Alistair McIntyre's definition that we are not born free. We are always born in a network of dependencies. Sometimes we have others dependent upon us, at other times we are dependent upon them. Certainly when we're born, we are very dependent upon our parents or whoever our guardians are. So I think the first thing we need to assert at a philosophical level is that human beings are dependent and that comes with responsibilities we are not unencumbered selves we are encumbered selves secondly i think we need to live in a manner that reflects that Uh, we need in our daily lives in our communities to indicate to those around us that we are not autonomous we have responsibilities to others Uh, we uh, are those who show hospitality and one of the reasons why my wife and i open our house to hospitality for kids in my classes is i know that the classroom is important but i know that what goes on in the classroom is reinforced when it's coupled with hospitality in our home so i would say we need to understand human beings as rational dependent creatures and we need to build our community lives around that particular conviction and and then maybe then maybe just this final thing in closing um where does religious thought play into uh, the defi- defining of self? Now, I-, I think to myself about this, that um, in the overturning of Roe v. Wade or in just the pro-life, um, in the pro-life discussion that we're having in America right now, now uh, Christians are almost forced to do something interesting, I think. We're forced to speak about the human being on like a cellular and a material level, which is actually something that Christians aren't necessarily that comfortable doing because we're used to speaking about human beings in a, in a different fashion. But it does bring up this question to me of the soul-body dichotomy and how important it is for the Christian to have a voice in the definition of self and, yeah. and, and what that looks like. So what would you say is an appropriate Christian definition of the self that needs to be entered into the conversation that's going yeah. on in the culture right now? I, I think the, the Christian needs to emphasize the embodiment of the self. Uh, uh, and I think our own doctrine allows us to do that. Christ is uh, the Son of God incarnate, manifest in the flesh. I think one of the things we don't, if you like that, I think the weakness has been that Christianity has tended to prioritize the soul over the body. We tended to tilt that way. Mm-hmm. I think that a recapturing of the notion of uh, my body is not a container in which my soul you know, which my soul occupies, like a man might occupy a spacesuit. My body is me. And we, we know that intuitively in terms of the language we use. You know, if we were in the same room now, 
and I shook your hand, you wouldn't say to, you know, oh, Carl's hand shook my hand. Mm-hmm. You would say, we shook hands. Uh, if I kiss my wife, my wife doesn't say, oh, Carl's lips touched my lips. She says, Carl kissed me. We intuitively know that our bodies are integral to who we are as human beings. So I think in Christian circles, a recapturing of the notion of the body in terms of selfhood is very, very important. It allows us to avoid that dichotomy, as you say, between inner feeling and bodily reality. And I think it also finds points of contact with the non-Christian world. Uh, We intuitively know, you know, even non-Christians intuitively know that sexual crimes are profoundly disturbing. Mm -hmm. Why are they profoundly disturbing? Because they are bodily engagements that don't just traumatize or violate the body. They violate the self by violating the body because body and self are inseparable, sexually speaking. So I think that an understanding of personhood connected to embodiment uh, will will give us i think a way of talking to our own christian people in more intelligent and persuasive ways about sex abortion things like that but will also potentially provide us with common ground with those who may disagree with our, our premises they may people may disagree that we're made in the image of god but they may still agree well actually yeah my body is an integral part of me it's not simply a spacesuit so this last question I think I know the answer to, which is always, I guess, a dumb question, but I I still want to hear your response to it because I think it's so important. And I find myself consistently wondering about where we're at in terms of the culture. And uh, the way I liken this is from a biblical perspective. Are we in the midst of Isaiah or are we in the midst of Jeremiah? And Isaiah was, hey, before it's too late, repent. And then Jeremiah was, guys, it's too late. I'm just going to tell you what's about to happen. So... um, there's a part of me that wonders if the rise and triumph of the modern self is is not too late because we've been programmed so deeply by the culture to think yeah. the way that we're thinking. So what do you think about that? Do you think that there is hope to um, to leave the concept of the modern self that, that we've evolved into and to fundamentally change that and to reclaim some of these uh, objective truths that as a culture in the past that we used to believe in? It's an interesting question. I think to some extent, uh, the the question, are we in Isaiah or Jeremiah, is it's unanswerable. I don't have an eternal perspective that allows me to make that call. What I do know is that I have an obligation as a Christian in the present day and age to fulfill my responsibilities, not simply to the world around me, but to generations yet to come. So my take on this is I don't think my book is going to turn things around by the middle of next week. I don't think my book is going to turn things around in my own lifetime. I do think, though, my book might be part of some bigger accumulation of literature, arguments, whatever, that may keep the light alive for another two or three generations when somebody can come along and in very different circumstances build positively and constructively on what we're doing. So I would say let's not get wrapped up in is this the end or is it just the beginning of the end or whatever. Let's focus on what our responsibilities are in the present vis-a-vis generations yet to come and make sure that we leave behind something upon which future generations can build, even if we ourselves are not uh, fortunate enough to live to see that building. 
Uh, very optimistic, and and I agree, and well said. And I don't think uh, you would have said it any differently um, based upon the fact that you actually just released a a new book. So uh, this popped up just recently, and I was very surprised to see it after um, the the amazing amount of labor that it took you, I'm sure, to do the rise and triumph of the modern self. But um, I I hope it's fair to say this, and you correct me if it's not. But you just released a book that's almost a primer to the rise and triumph of the modern self, where you dig into a lot of the ideas, or at least a lot of the thinkers that um, uh, that you discuss in the yeah. book, and kind of focus in on those on those thinkers, and it's called Strange New Worlds. So, how would you describe that book? Would you call it a primer on the rise and triumph of the modern it's, self? It, it, it's it contains a little bit of new material, but it's basically uh, a precy of the overall argument of uh, rise and triumph, designed specifically for busy people who don't have time to read. 400 page it's designed yeah. for sunday schools it's designed for reading when you're on the train on the way to work the origins of it were my friend ryan anderson at the ethics and public policy center when the big book came out called me and said love the book but there's one problem it's too long <laughs> no dc staffers are going to read it you've got to do something shorter so the idea was get the arguments out in a more accessible form and if anybody wants more information they can go to the bigger book where the arguments laid out in detail but the bones of the argument are in the smaller. Yeah, I, I find that there's so much benefit in actually going through history and thinking about these thinkers. Now, obviously, you can scare yourself into thinking that Marx is everywhere if you, if you do that, hiding under, under every bush. But I, I also find that, boy, there's so, I guess, the, just that saying, that if you don't learn from the past, you're destined to repeat it, never ceases to be true. And I, I think your book does a fantastic job of that, because we look at what's going on in our world right now, and we come away disoriented, and we're like, where does this stuff come from? And your book just does a fantastic job of saying, hey, the curse causeless shall not come, if you want to use proverbial language there. Like, hey, there's a reason that this stuff has happened, and it's happened over a series of time and people and events building upon one another. Um, and 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 seeing where these ideas come from help us understand them and then help us address them. So needless to say, thank you for taking the time to create both of those books. So I know you've got to go. So I just want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. That'll wrap us up for this guest show. Guys, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and you can comment below. If this video was helpful to you, thanks so much for watching. We'll catch you next time. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. IndieThinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself.